Years ago, author Leslie Flynn wrote a book entitled, Great Church Fights. He documented cases of just how contentious and hostile church members can be. Ask any pastor who's been around the block a time or two, and he'll tell you that ministry is a contact sport. It's sad when the church becomes a cage match. Yet Titus, not just Leslie Flynn, could have written a book entitled Great Church Fights. For he was sent by Paul to pastor an ornery church on the island of Crete. In describing the Cretans in chapter 1 verse 12, Paul quotes a local, local author who characterized his own people as always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Not very flattering. And Titus had been asked to pastor the Cretan church. Obviously a church full of very cranky people. Here's the question that prompted Paul's letter to Titus. How do you oversee rambunctious people? And this book communicates one certainty. To deal with difficult people, strong leadership is essential. In three chapters, Paul condenses the instructions that he communicated in his first letter to Timothy, and he gives Titus a crash course in effective spiritual leadership. Verse 1 begins, Paul, a bondservant of God. Literally, the apostle here calls himself a love slave, an odd title indeed. Realize slavery in Old Testament Israel was different than the chattel slavery of early America. It wasn't one person owning another person. It was a man working for another man to pay off his debts. Often the slave served a kind and benevolent master. In fact, he lived a better life in his master's house than he could achieve on his own. And in response, at times, a freed slave would forego his liberty to remain in his master's household. Exodus 21 tells us, That in such cases, the slave would go to the door of his master's house. And before the city magistrates, a sharp awl was driven through the lobe of his ear. He was pinned to his master's door. And that pierced ear forever identified that man as a bondservant or a love slave. As Paul puts it here in verse 1, a bondservant of God. See, Paul first came to Christ because he owed the Lord an enormous debt he could never repay. But the longer he served God, the more he realized that he could do far better in God's house than he could ever do on his own. Paul was pinned to the door of a kind and a benevolent master. What about you? Are you a love slave of Jesus Christ? Paul was also an apostle of Jesus Christ. The word translated apostle, it means sent out one. Paul was sent out by God to share the good news of Jesus. And he was sent out according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. The elect are the hand-picked of God. But evidently, even the hand-picked still need to have faith. Salvation is both God's choice and your choice. You might wonder how that reconciles, but the Bible detects no contradiction. And here Paul defines what real faith looks like. 
It is a sincere and a serious acknowledgement of the truth that harmonizes with godliness. In essence, faith that saves us is also the faith that changes us. The New Testament knows nothing of proclamation without transformation. And then verse 2 tells us our faith is in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of our God, of God our Savior. And notice here we're told something that God cannot do. He cannot lie. You know, a study I recommend to you is to go through the Bible and recreate a list of all the things that God cannot do. In Malachi 3, verse 6, the Lord says, I change not. He cannot change. James 1, verse 13, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. 2 Timothy 2, verse 13, God cannot deny himself. He always acts true to his character. There are some things that God cannot do. And one is to lie. That's why you can always take God's word to the bank. For what God promises, he is faithful to perform. And God has promised us eternal life in Christ Jesus. Now Paul addresses his letter to Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now as Paul did with Timothy, he refers to Titus as a son in the faith. Paul was a spiritual father or a mentor to Titus. These two men had known each other now for over 20 years. Paul and Titus first met on Paul's initial missionary trip to Galatia. Titus was a Gentile. And when Titus came to Jerusalem with Paul and entered the temple, he became a flashpoint of controversy for the legalists. You see, the Jews tried to force Titus to be circumcised. But Paul refused to buckle under to their demands. He knew that rules and rituals have nothing to do with a right standing with God. Forgiveness is by grace through faith. God had accepted Titus through faith alone, and so did Paul. Titus continued to minister with Paul over the years. Along with Timothy, Titus was a faithful troubleshooter. They were Paul's messengers among the churches. In fact, Titus was with Paul after his appeal to Caesar Nero on his voyage from Caesarea to Rome. When Paul's ship stopped off at the island of Crete, a little southeast of Greece, Titus stayed behind to minister to the church there. During Paul's second imprisonment, we know that Titus joined Paul in Rome. For a time, he ministered in Dalmatia, but eventually Titus returned to Crete. The church historian Eusebius tells us that Titus pastored the Cretan church into old age, apparently proving it's possible to even grow fond of difficult people. Verse 5 reminds Titus of why he was dispatched to Crete. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking. Now, I'm sure you realize there are no perfect churches. And if there was, please, don't you join it. You'll ruin it. 
For every church has things that are lacking. We all have our shortcomings and our deficiencies. And it's the pastor's job to constantly be taking spiritual inventory. When folks inform me of a deficiency in our church, usually I'm one step ahead. I agree. I'm looking for the chinks in our armor. A pastor, an elder's job is to shore up our weaknesses as we build upon our strengths. And then verse 5 adds to Titus' job description. He's to appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. You'll remember in Acts chapter 6, deacons were selected by the people of the church in Jerusalem. But elders were always chosen by the existing elders. Paul does this in Galatia in Acts chapter 14 verse 23. And in these next few verses, Paul lists the qualifications of a pastor slash elder, an overseer in the church. You'll notice this list is similar to the list in 1 Timothy 3, proving that God's qualifications for leaders are the same in all churches. Timothy pastored an urban church in the city of Ephesus. Titus here pastors on a remote rural island called Crete, and yet leaders in both locales should be of the same stuff. Qualifications begin in verse 6. If a man is blameless, blameless, in essence, there's nothing hanging over his head. There are no outstanding warrants for his arrest. It's not that he's sinless, but he has owned his errors, and he has made amends, and he has tried to repair the damage that he's done. He's also the husband of one wife, literally a one-woman man. He doesn't have eyes for sisters in the church. He's loyal to just one woman. Having faithful children not accused of dissipation or insubordination. His kids aren't perfect, but neither are they out of control or running wild. He's not afraid to discipline his kids when they defy or when they rebel. And then he says in verse 7, For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God. You see, a church leader needs to realize that the church belongs to Jesus. We're just stewards, just caretakers, just custodians of the church. Each church is God's church. Once a salesman came to town, he was looking for the local church of God. He asked a resident if he knew where the church was located. The man answered, he said, well, there's a church on Main Street, but it belongs to a couple of rich cats that keep it afloat. And there's a church on Maple, but it belongs to a stubborn old grunt that runs the show down there. And there's a church down on Elm Street, but it belongs to the family that founded it. No, I don't think any of the churches around here belong to God. When an elder or a pastor acts as if they own the church, there's a huge problem. Church leadership exists to represent God and to carry out His intentions. The church belongs to God. The qualifications of leadership here continue, not self-willed. In other words, no personal agendas. Not quick-tempered. Church leaders need patience. Why? Because people need patience. Not given to wine. Now, as a believer, it is our liberty to drink alcohol, as long as it doesn't cause ourselves or our brother to stumble. But a leader should be willing to give up some legitimate rights for the greater good. 
See, it's a privilege to be a leader in the body of Christ. But that privilege always comes with responsibility. The men at the helm make important decisions at the spur of the moment. And they can't afford a cloudy judgment. Admittedly, opinions differ on whether this phrase, not given to wine, requires total abstinence or just extreme caution. But there's no doubt it's intended to limit the elder's use of alcohol and warn him of its dangers. At Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain, we've chosen to embrace the spirit of this phrase, and we ask our pastors and elders to forego their liberty to drink for the greater good of the church. And then he says, of the elders, not violent. (laughs) You know, you just don't want the elders meeting to turn into a fisticuffs, okay? And since the elders handle church finances, not greedy for money also applies. But hospitable. Oh, they should be willing to open their heart and their home to newcomers. A lover of what is good. Goes without saying, doesn't it? Sober-minded, that is level-headed, just or fair, and holy. The term holy means reserved for God. Here's how you spot holiness. It's a man willing to give stuff up to spend time with God and be accessible for service and be a better witness for Jesus. An elder should also be self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. A leader should be able and willing to confront the enemies of sound doctrine. Thus, he can't be afraid to go toe-to-toe with a problem child in the church. But Pastor Titus needed help. A pastor can't be the only one who takes a stand. He needs other men who are sound in doctrine and not afraid of confrontation. And so Paul says in verse 10, For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers. Many insubordinate, he says. Understand, there are two types of insubordination. There is implicit and there is explicit. If you entertain criticism of the church and say, Oh, I'm just being a sounding board without sounding back that that criticism you're hearing is wrong or uninformed or unfair, you're giving implicit approval to what's being said. You're becoming a party to the rebellion without intending to. I've read for a virus to remain in your body, it has to have a host cell. It takes root in a cell that provides it shelter and nourishment. And from there it begins to spread. And the same is true with the bad attitude in a church. It too finds a host cell. A person or persons who may not totally agree with the attitude, but they tolerate it for some reason. Without realizing it, the host cell shelters and nourishes that bad attitude so that it enlarges and begins to spread. Paul says idle talkers and deceivers are guilty of insubordination. Verse 10 tells us that the source of the problems in the Cretan church were coming especially from those of the circumcision. Jewish traditionalists and legalists were undermining God's liberating grace. Paul tells Titus boldly, verse 11, 
their mouths must be stopped. Well, that's a bold statement. See, leaders can't be afraid of confrontation. These kinds of problems don't just disappear on their own. When a church member becomes contentious, the men in charge need to steer him back or kick him out. Difficult people have to be discipled or disciplined. Paul says to Titus, their mouths must be stopped. For if allowed, the legalists will subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. If there's no leader who stands up for what's right, then folks will come in and preach what sells. In the absence of strong leadership, people with the money motive come in and pray on the flock of God. And then in verse 12, Paul shows his knowledge of the rowdy crowd that Titus was trying to pastor. For he writes, one of them, a prophet of their own, said, and here Paul quotes a fellow Cretan. He quotes the philosopher Epimenides. He says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And Paul agrees. He says, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. These Cretans, they had an antagonistic reputation. Even Epimenides realized that they were cantankerous people. And they needed a sharp rebuke from their pastor. Difficult people need strong leadership. You know, it's interesting here, though, that Paul knew and had read the Greek classics. Epimenides had written in 659 B.C., 700 years earlier than Paul. And here Paul is familiar with his work. Obviously, Paul saw the value of educating himself in the culture around him. And he thought of the folks that he wanted to reach, what appealed and related to them. And yet there's a balance in this. For verse 14, Titus is not to give heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. Paul knew of Epimenides' writings, but he didn't take his cues from Greek philosophy or from Jewish fable. He was true to God's word. And he tells Titus to follow God's truth, not human speculation. Paul says in verse 15, To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. For even their mind and conscience are defiled. Let's say a loving person finds a hammer on the street. And he uses that hammer to build a poor man a house. Whereas a violent person finds that same hammer, but uses it as a weapon. Oh, it's the same identical hammer. But what makes it good or evil is the heart of the person who picks it up. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled, nothing is pure. What makes anything good or evil is the heart of the person who handles it. Attitude is what matters most. And in verse 16, Paul warns of folks who profess to know God, but in works they deny Him. Who is that? It's a hypocrite. Being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified from every good work. 
Here is the poster child for difficult church members. It's the hypocrite. It's the person who talks a good talk, but his actions speak so loud you can't hear a word that he says. Well, in chapter 2, Paul writes, But as for you, Titus, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. And in the next few verses, Paul is going to exhort the church to act like a family. He points to four groups of people who make up the family of God in every church. And he gives instructions to each group. First is the older men. I suppose I qualify for that. The older men. And notice what they need to be. They need to be sober. Don't show up at the OFC tipsy. Be reverent. Take the things of God seriously if you're an older man. Be temperate. Be moderate in your habits. Be sound in faith, in love, in patience. In other words, be a good example. Verse 3 addresses the older women. Likewise, they should have the same traits. And by the way, how do you know you're getting older? Oh my. Well, here's a list of things that clue you that you're getting older. When you get out of the shower and you're glad the mirror's fogged up. When you go for a haircut and the barber asks, why? When you find TV ads for hemorrhoidal cream interesting. When the phrase, getting a little action, means the prune juice is working. You're getting older, friend. And as you pick up items on the floor, you ask, anything else I can get while I'm down here? I could go on and on, you know. Actually, older people are one of the greatest forces for good in the church. They have wisdom. They have free time. They have some experience that the rest of the body can use. The older believer may be retired from employment, but there is no such thing as retirement from spiritual service. I have heard some older folks comment, Well, I served when my kids were younger. Now it's somebody else's turn. That's not a godly attitude. We should appreciate the older saints, and they should want to eagerly serve the Lord. Well, Paul tells Titus to exhort the older women that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or gossips, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women. And notice this, it is the job of the older women to teach the younger women. Too many churches set up their pastors for failure by not taking chapter 2, verses 2 and 3 seriously. For when a pastor counsels a young lady on an ongoing basis, dangerous dynamics get set into motion. A healthy attraction can develop. This is why the older women, not the pastors, should disciple the younger women. Our pastors will talk to a young lady once or twice or if needed. But if it's going to require ongoing counsel, it should be referred 
to older women. And the older ladies need to teach the younger ladies to love their husbands and to love their children. Now, when a woman first gets married, she thinks both come naturally. (laughs) But not so. Not when the husband gets fat and lazy. And when the children become teenagers. That's when she's got to learn to love her family. Not simply as she wants to love them, but as her family needs to be loved. The younger women also need to be discreet, that is appropriate, in both conduct and conversation. The younger woman needs to learn when to take initiative and when to wait on her husband. When to comment and when to let it pass. And then the attitude chase, she needs to be chaste. That's also on Paul's list. It means purity in mind and heart. Paul also says that the younger women should be taught to be homemakers. Once a little boy was asked if his family said a prayer before dinner. He replied, nah, we don't have to. My mom's a really good cook. (laughs) Ladies, are you a good homemaker? The Greek word means a keeper or a guardian of the home. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that a woman can't venture out of her home to earn money for her family. No more than it means that a husband whose primary duty is to provide for his family can't help his wife clean and manage the home. Marriage is certainly a team sport. But Paul wants to make sure that younger women order their lives in such a way that it puts them in position to manage the affairs of their family. No woman should ever be so busy that she puts her family on the back burner. We learn from Proverbs 31 that a virtuous woman can be both a good mom and a successful business lady. She's industrious and ambitious, but her chief assignment is to manage a peaceful and an orderly home. Let's all remember, home is the most important place on earth. Home is where life makes up its mind. It is a family's refuge from this world. A stable home makes for stable kids and a steady husband. A lady who neglects her home and allows chaos to rule is out of God's will. It's the older Christian ladies who should teach the younger ladies to be good, obedient to their own husbands that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Now, this may not be a popular observation these days, but it's nonetheless true. When a lady refuses to submit to her husband's leadership, it casts a cloud over God's word. You see, in marriage, God has assigned roles to both spouses that speak powerfully of his relationship with his people. The husband, like Christ, should lead. And the wife, like the church, should follow her husband. And how thoroughly we have absorbed the Christian way of life is reflected in our attitude toward these roles. Thus, if you ignore them, you blaspheme the word of God. Ladies, if little green Martians landed in your backyard, in their little spaceship, and they said to your kids... Take me to your leader. 
would your kids take them to mom or to dad? A godly wife will let her husband lead. Verse 6 tells us, Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded, that is, clear thinkers. Men, if you want your wife to follow you and trust your decisions, you can't be impulsive or hot-headed or driven by emotions. You have got to be level-headed. Always aim carefully before you pull that trigger and decide to take action. A young man's character list continues in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. Young men need to develop a pattern, a good track record. And their reputation, that is their pattern of good works, should include in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. The measure of a man's integrity is the gap between what he believes and how he actually lives. And my question to the men here today, is that gap in your life broadening or shrinking? Hopefully it's shrinking. Every man wants to be respected, but the wise man lives respectably. Verse 9. Exhort servants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things. And what was true of servants in Rome is true of employees today. Our desire to be a godly example starts at work. He says, not answering back. In other words, don't be a smart aleck at work. Don't be insubordinate. Respect authority. Don't buck it. And then he says in verse 10, not pilfering. 2021 statistics show that American businesses lost three times as much to employee theft as they did to shoplifting. Three times as much. I've read that one out of 11 Americans are guilty of shoplifting, while three out of four have stolen from their employer. See, just because you're not paid what you think you deserve doesn't entitle you to take little self-appointed perks and favors. Taking what doesn't belong to you is stealing. Instead, employees should show all good fidelity. They should be honest and trustworthy in all matters. That they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. And I love this idea. Wow. Think about it. That we can adorn the doctrine of God. That we can give the gospel color and beauty And pizzazz. By how? By living lives transformed by the gospel. By Jesus Christ. And then verses 11 through 14 are powerful verses. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. For a world drowning in sin, grace is God's first responder. It is. There's an African proverb I love. I like it because it highlights God's grace. We're all like a turtle on top of a fence post. We're all like a turtle on top of a fence post. A turtle can't climb up that post. It didn't get there by climbing up. There's no way it can jump or fly to the top of a fence post. 
The only way you'll ever see a turtle on top of a fence post is if someone else reaches down, picks up that turtle, and does for it what it could never do for itself. Someone else has to put it there. And you see, that describes our salvation. That God in Christ has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. Grace goes against our human grain. From an early age, in most arenas of life, we're measured by how we perform. But grace makes God's favor free of charge. We're all like a turtle on top of a fence post. And once we receive God's grace, it becomes our teacher. Paul writes of Professor Grace. He says, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. What is the intent of God's extravagant grace? It's to make for himself a special people, distinct from this world, zealous for goodness, always looking and longing for the coming of our Lord Jesus. Grace should change everything about us. How we live and where we look and who we serve. In verse 15 here, Paul tells Titus to be bold and brave. To have some backbone now. Speak these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Chapter 3 reminds us that though God wants us distinct from the world, we still have an obligation to it. For we are citizens of two kingdoms. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of men. And it's our job to obey both the laws of the Lord and the laws of the land. Paul tells Titus, Remind them to, subject, to be subject to rulers and authority. Remind them to be subject to earthly rulers and authorities. You see, a lack of submission to the government has the same effect as a wife's unwillingness to follow her husband. It undermines the gospel. How can we expect our friends to submit to an authority they can't see, God, if Christians won't submit to the authority we can see, human government? We need to remind the church, he says, to obey To be ready for every good work. To speak evil of no one. In other words, the fellowship of the body of Christ should be a gossip-free zone. We need to also be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. You see what he's saying to Titus? You've got to be a strong leader, Titus, but you can't forget to love and be patient and be kind. You've got to remember where you came from, Titus. You see, it's hard to get the big head if we remember what we were before we came to Christ. In light of the rap sheet Christ expunged in my life, I need to walk in humility and show the same patience to others that I've been shown. Verse 4. 
But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. Did you hear that? According to His mercy, not by our righteousness, but according to His mercy, He saved us. Again, we enjoy the kindness of our Savior today because of His mercy, not our merit. Once a former basketball star from St. John's University died, at the pearly gate, he was asked if he'd done anything that might exclude him from heaven. Well, he confessed. He said, well, once I was in a game and I took a shot at the end of the game. The buzzer went off. The ball went in. St. John's won. But I was looking right at the clock and I saw the triple zeros before I shot the ball. And rather than tell the truth that day, I just kept my mouth shut and we won the game that we should have lost. The gatekeeper responded, ah, no big deal, come on in. The player said, wow, thanks St. Peter. The gatekeeper replied, I'm not St. Peter, I'm St. John. (laughs) That was pretty good. The truth is, it's not your good works that save any of us, and it's not our evil deeds that exclude us. Salvation is determined by faith, and faith alone. Faith in the love of our Savior, Jesus Christ. His mercy, not our merit. And notice 2 verse 5, God saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out for us abundantly, Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now here's what saves. Not what we do, but what Jesus did for us and what the Spirit of God does in us. Jesus paid for our spiritual renewal. When my boys were all little, they would get so dirty that Kathy wouldn't even let them in the house. She'd strip them down naked out in the backyard And she'd squirt them down with a hose before she ever let them in the yard, in in the house. See, we learned with three boys that you can pull a boy out of the mud and wash him off. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't have the desire to get dirty again. And likewise, most folks don't appreciate the miracle of God's new birth. For the Holy Spirit not only hoses off our dirt, and, but He births in us new life. He cuts out the old sinful nature and He implants in us the nature of Jesus so that as a Christian, I am not only cleansed, but I no longer want to get dirty. And when I do, I'm quick to repent. What a miracle that is. God has worked in our hearts. Verse 7 continues, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And you know this word justified, to be justified means God treats me just as if I'd never sinned even when I do. It's called grace. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. Titus needs to preach this message, and the church needs to hear it over and over and over again. None of us are saved by good works, but we are all saved to do good works. Amen.
Now Paul tells Titus to teach these things, for they are good and profitable to men. But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Avoid peripheral issues, the minutiae. Stay focused on grace and godliness. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. If a man is perpetually contentious, first warn him. But if your warning goes unheeded, then reject him. And if need be, eject him. It's been said a troublemaker is a person who rocks the boat, then convinces everyone else there's a storm at sea. Apparently the church of Crete was full of these type of folks. You know, over the years I've realized that a mark of spiritual maturity is the ability to identify what's important and what's not. What's worth fighting over and what's not. I love the old adage, a bulldog can whip a skunk, but is it really worth the effort? I mean, there are arguments that I can win, but is it really worth the outcome? What good is it to win an argument and in doing so lose my brother? This, though, is what a difficult person doesn't get. He delights in pushing buttons and stirring up arguments and causing dissension. And this is the kind of attitude that harms our harmony and our unity. Paul's remedy for the contentious person in the church is simple and straightforward. Warn the guy twice. And if he doesn't change his way, send him on his way. Paul concludes his letter with some personal notes. Verse 12 When I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis. Nicopolis was a city on the Greek mainland. For I have decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their journey with haste, that they may lack nothing. Isn't it sad how folks like to pick on lawyers? Always picking on lawyers. I've heard it said, it's 99% of the lawyers that give the rest of them a bad name. (laughs) Zenos was a good lawyer, and he was also Paul's pal. And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. And here's how you maintain a good, effective witness for Jesus. Do good works and meet urgent needs. And you'll spread the fame of Jesus far and wide. Well, all who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. At times, all of us have to deal with Cretans, with difficult people. Let's remember, difficult people require loving but strong leadership. Father, thank you for Paul's letter to Titus and the truths that we can glean from it for today. Lord, we are eager. We are hungry for you. We want to learn your word. We want to apply it in our lives. Lord, we don't just want to be hearers of your word, but we also want to be doers. So show us, Lord, where we can apply your word to our hearts today. We love you and we thank you for these truths. 
We ask for your help now in remembering them and in applying them. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,